This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre Lanza. If you've been anywhere near a museum lately, you might have thought that these institutions are in a state of an existential crisis. The pop-up exhibition in the anthropological wing proposes returning all of the museum's holdings to another country the contemporary art galleries filled with political banners. The old master's wing has been cancelled, and the local history annex is on fire. Well, it turns out that this crisis in the museum is not new. A new book, entitled simply The Museum, by Samuel Redman, traces the past hundred years of the development of these cultural institutions in the US. And it does this by highlighting the eerily regular and uncannily predictable frequency with which things go wrong in the museum. Global pandemics, we've done it. Racial reckonings, of course. Floods, fires, economic downturns, you don't need to ask. But the museum's recovery from these events isn't always straightforward. Turns out that a fire may be good for the institution. Economic depressions are worse, but they do bring other opportunities. Samuel Redman is a social professor of history in the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and he joins me now. Welcome to the show, Sam. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you. I feel that I have to start our conversation with a bit of a disclaimer, which is that my attitude towards the museum and cultural institutions in general tends to be ambivalent, if not outright critical. But precisely because of that, I feel compelled to give you a couple of compliments to begin with. One of them is that you've written a book that is timely. I didn't quite realize that a history of the museum over the last hundred or so years would actually be so useful to the moment today when museums are so busy trying to rethink and reshape everything that they do and everything that they project about themselves. And the second compliment is that you mix your perspective as someone with the experience of working in museums and that of an outsider, and as much as a historian as an outsider of quite often even history museums, which are the subjects of your book, somehow that produces an insight that I haven't seen captured in this particular way. So before we get into any of the details, I I want to ask you how you've developed your approach and what what it is that drew you to museums and the histories at all. Yes. So like many people who are interested in history or cultural institutions, I I in some ways sort of grew up with it. Uh, My parents were avid museum goers and would frequently bring me to museums and and those uh, types of activities growing up. My sister worked in the museum world for, for a number of years, and uh, it sort of seemed natural when I finished school studying history and archaeology and anthropology that I would start working in a museum, which I did for a number of years uh, uh, during uh, my completion of college and then shortly thereafter. Um, but you know, while working with museum collections behind the scenes, I became intensely fascinated by the history of museums. these How did these cultural institutions come to be? 
how did these collections come here uh, to Chicago or to St. Paul, Minnesota? Why is there uh, Egyptian material in Denver, Colorado? Uh, so that whole story <laughs> is something that's been studied, of course, by a lot of other uh, amazing scholars. But I became interested in that in my own way and wanted to go back to graduate school to study that. And so I, I'm still very committed to museums as cultural institutions. But I'm, I'm, I, as you suggested, I've become much more of a historian of these things. And I'm a history professor now at, at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where I teach history classes in addition to doing my research. So you've already indicated the kind of standard uh, framing for the history of museums. So how do we come to build this? Why does X have collection Y? And so on and so on. But actually, in the book, you do something much more interesting and, and irreverent in a morbid way, which is that you frame the entire history of the museum as an institution and the American Museum in particular through a series of disasters. The anecdote that opens the book is the 1865 fire of the Smithsonian Institution, which I think is kind of beautiful because it gives, gives us this idea that disaster can also lead to renewal. So the Smithsonian emerges from the fire as though it were a phoenix coming out of the ashes. Well, it's a story that I, I knew a little bit about going into researching this book, but I, I didn't know too much about that the Smithsonian, there was a, an episode that's considered a national disaster, a national calamity, when towards the end of the Civil War in the United States in 1865, a defective flu in the building caught fire. So if you spend any time reading about the 19th century or uh, reading diaries or, or letters or newspapers from the 19th century, you'll know that it seems like fires were everywhere all the time. <laughs> Unfortunately, things just burned just very consistently. It was sort of part of American life at that time. Uh, but to see the Smithsonian, the National Museum, that was already by this point filled with paintings and objects and scientific instruments from around the world, seeing that burn uh, nearly to uh, to the ground was was a pretty devastating sort of national calamity and, and sort of psychologically that was quite damaging. But what I found was kind of interesting is what happens over the next several decades. Uh, over the next two, three decades, the Smithsonian grows in size dramatically. There's more clarity brought to its collecting practices. Mm -hmm. And uh, exhibitions are completely redesigned. The halls are electrified and suddenly attendance booms. So sort of coming out of this fire is a whole host of changes uh, and shifts in sort of the direction that the museum is going uh, in some ways, bringing it forward into the modern era. So it's a devastating fire. There are certain things that were lost forever that we can't get back. But in other ways, it, it sort of clarified what the mission of a museum should be in that era. Well, as a non-historian, I think I'm going to let myself feel positively nostalgic for this moment, which we can characterize as this kind of very predictable moment of rebirth you know, that we, that we mythologize. But the bulk of the book deals with the 20th century, where I would, I would say the story is very, very different. The image that we get is of history, in the worst possible cliche, um, repeating itself with increasing, increasing frequency. And we are treated to one anecdote after another of events taking place and then reoccurring 15 years later. And seemingly nobody really being able to take a historical perspective, the way that we can look, say, at the fire and draw these kind of rounded conclusions. So I wonder whether we could spend a moment trying to narrate some of this history as you begin to do so in the book. You start before the First World War, which is a moment in the American Museum where the position of the institution has been quite firmly established. Museum is there to educate the masses. The rates of literacy in the country have shot up. So the museum as an institution is really enjoying new status. But as we already indicated, um, this status doesn't last. Sure, sure. So yeah, the, the, the genesis of the project uh, it in some ways uh, comes out of the early in the year 2020, which I'm sure listeners will remember was a, a, a very chaotic time globally in, in Europe and in the United States too. Uh, and I had initially had a conversation with an editor about uh, a, a book possibly about the, the future of museums, what museums should look like in, in the future. And, and I 
I went away from that conversation interested and enticed, but I just didn't think people wanted to read what a historian might say mm. the future of museums might be. <laughs> um, but then so, uh, suddenly the whole world seemed to really change over the course of between January and, and March and, and April, right? That we went into these massive lockdowns. Mm -hmm. And then on the heels of that, of course, the uh, incredible racial unrest so that, you know, was this sort of chaotic moment and it sent me back into my library and it, it sent me back into sort of thinking through the stories uh, of crisis. And uh, of course, a lot of other people were thinking about the 1918, 1919 uh, influenza epidemic, the, the, the so-called Spanish flu. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to go back to uh, think about how museums had dealt with that because I hadn't really read a whole lot uh, expressing what what museums had dealt with in that way. And when you start reading the, the annual reports and the letters and, and, and the newspaper articles, it's clear that uh, indeed uh, the, the uh, influenza epidemic had an impact on museums, but it was overshadowed in so many respects by the First World War, mm -hmm. by the incredible racial unrest, the white supremacist violence that's also happening in this time, as well as the economic uncertainty, right? High inflation and, and uh, joblessness in the wake of uh, the First World War. And to be honest, a lot of this stuff sounded really familiar to your point yeah. about history rhyming or, or echoing. Here we are now, again, in the midst of a, a global pandemic. We're also in the midst of an era of racial unrest and racial reckoning. And there was an outbreak of war in Europe. Uh, I mean, gosh, how familiar, you know, in some ways uh, to the story of what was happening 100 years ago. Uh, and, and to me, I found that, you know, museums did not escape from this unscathed, right? That uh, some museum curators and staffers are, are called to war and they die in, in the war. Uh, others uh, die as a result of uh, the Spanish flu, the, the influenza epidemic. Yeah. So it is, it is not as though there isn't loss in, in this moment. But it's also a moment where museums sort of step up to the stage in uh, presenting new things about current events and trying to be more civically minded and engaged in a way that they, they weren't previously. So uh, it turns out to be a really important, if chaotic, moment. Well, let's examine this moment, particularly the response that museums develop faced with this crisis yet again. You cite in the book from a writing by John Cotendena, who is one of the kind of precursors of museum science from his writing is 1917. He does a couple of things. One of them is bemoan the fact that there are no established systems for museum management. So it turns out that absolutely nobody knows how to look after ever-growing collections. But also another thing that he does, and I think it comes to the fore, is this crisis of confidence. There's the emergence of a public discussion about the purpose of museums. So there's a sense in which that educational mission is maybe not enough, or indeed the museum, for its own interest, doesn't think that it is equipped to be able to carry this mission on onward. So I'm interested in how you think museums started solving this problem and also how they started communicating to the public about it. Absolutely. So um, this is it's a fascinating era for me in terms of thinking about these types of questions and historians and, and others who have written about it have two sort of conflicting views of uh, what sort of the, the, the legacy is of this. Um, some people see these as, a, as, as quite indeed quite elitist organizations. And they you know, if you think about uh, who uh, is pulling sort of the intellectual strings at the top, who's providing mm -hmm. the funding, the boards, uh, where a lot of these materials uh, are, are coming from. How can you not see these as incredibly elitist organizations? But I also look at the earliest visitor surveys that were done in the mm -hmm. 1920s at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. And when I read those, I am shocked, <laughs> frankly, mm -hmm. by the number of people who classify their job occupation as farmer. Wow. There were as many farmers as lawyers or bankers going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. Now, how could that be, right? How could it be that the number of housewives go, quote unquote, you know, using the parlance of the 1920s is outpacing other groups of uh, professionals going to these mm -hmm. institutions? Well, in part, it has something to do with the literacy question. 
and yep. the availability of sort of growing popular uh, ed education, as well as access to these institutions through growing cities, uh, immigration uh, coming to these same places, improved transportation, right? Mm -hmm. The rise of the automobile for all of its many ills allows people to enter into these cities in a, in a way that they previously were not able to. So, you know, there are a lot of ways to think about both, I would say, the limitations of that public education question, as well as the sort of possibilities that museums are exploring at this time. But what I find fascinating about this, and even, you know, in the earlier era for museums in the 19th century, is that there's still a lot of uncertainty mm -hmm. in terms of how this is going to play out. And so to me, these crisis moments really sort of put those questions into relief yeah. And they make sometimes these abstract questions become very real, you know, like, well, who exactly are we going to target with our, our museum? Are we going to focus more on the research aspect of our mission or are we going to think more about the popular education side of things? And a lot of that sort of balance really shifts over the course of the 20th century. Hmm. I think one of the key things to note here is the economic background against which these events are taking place, these developments are taking place. So, of course, you alluded to just now the expansion of the city. The city is growing. New audiences of all possible classes and provenances come to the American city in that, in that time. And, of course, that strikes me as something that is in stark contrast with the story of the city today. We have many narratives by which we could probably think about our cities today as fundamentally unsustainable. And I think from that perspective, it's interesting to consider the period of recovery of the museum in the 1920s, um, as the museum retains this kind of ambivalence towards, say, class of its visitors, and bizarrely manages to withstand competition with, say, the radio, which is um, expanding, it's emerging at the same time. Okay, so another uh, sort of remarkable truth was suggested to me. There's a, a, a phrase that historians often use about the uh, the 1918 influenza epidemic, sometimes calling it the forgotten pandemic. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember growing up in graduate school, uh, I make myself sound like I was a toddler in graduate school, but it feels <laughs> like that a little bit. But back then, we used to talk about it as the forgotten pandemic because it mm -hmm. killed so many hundreds of thousands or millions of people globally. And yet it, it sort of is forgotten a little bit in, in our sort of historical memory of that event. And I, you know, always sort of wonder, well, how could that be? How could that be? Well, I feel like now having lived through the COVID-19 pandemic, I have a much better mm -hmm. sense of that in that I know certain people who were so ready to move on, you know, and ready to sort of, you know, go dancing in San Francisco or in a, a, a Ibiza or, you know, go on vacations or getting their mind off of things, going to movies, that type of thing. And you can see similarities in sort of the, the post-World War One era in that people are, are thinking about victory during World War One. They're, they're thinking about economic uncertainty in the early early part of the 1920s before this boom really takes off uh, during the, the the middle part of the, the the roaring 20s as we remember it you know there's still a lot of like his, historical forgetting happening in that moment mm -hmm. that is honestly quite reminiscent of, of what we're going through now to what extent will people really remember a few years later the intensity of the racial conversation? Uh, that's been happening. I think a lot of critics would point to mm -hmm. a, a lot of active forgetting already taking place. And I mean, similarly, in that earlier era, people were sort of ready to move on. But there's evidence of this, like, temporary declines in attendance numbers, uh, the, the cancellation of expeditions to go abroad to collect objects. And uh, as I mentioned previously, staffers and uh, people connected to museums becoming sick and, and dying or their family members becoming sick and dying. So it's not as though people could completely forget it or move move away from it. But there was sort of an effort during the, the success of the 1920s to move on, as it were. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I could keep going about the next chapter, which is on the Great Depression, mm -hmm. uh, where, there, you know, similarly, when the Second World War comes, uh, I think a lot of historians have pointed out that some of that historical memory about the trials and tribulations of, of the 1930s is sort of similarly uh, wiped away. Uh, and while museum staffers are again let go and expeditions are again curtailed, what, one of the, the sort of points of the book is that frequently these crisis moments become opportunities where, as during the Great Depression, for example, many museums turn to newly available federal funding 
through the New Deal to get WPA workers and NYA workers and CCC workers to do everything from landscaping around museums to constructing new exhibit halls and rearranging the collections. So sort of this look at at, at a couple of different sides of the coin there. But um, in, in both of those moments, there's a rapid effort to sort of move towards recovery and then a lot of sort of forgetting about the challenges that have been faced uh, previously. Well, maybe one of the reasons we're so keen to forget that it is quite easy to latch onto, say, an upswing, a positive that could be construed in the period of recovery. So this is the theme that we've been exploring kind of throughout every one of these disasters. And I'm wondering whether there is much evidence of kind of understanding of how the periods of recovery necessitate certain ideological changes. So one of the institutions that you discuss in the book is the Hearst Museum of Anthropology in San Francisco, which of course suffers through all of these events the same that any other institution would do. It has its budgets cut, it has to move, its staff is gone. But there is something also new that's emerging, which is that this diminished material position necessitates and invites the museum to develop a research agenda, which is something that hasn't really taken place before. So we're in this kind of uncharted territory that turns up to be intellectually invaluable to the museum from that point on. And having this story for me is like foreshadowing of the development of the institutions under the New Deal and the WPA programs, For example, you say that the Smithsonian received no fewer than a quarter of a million person hours under the WPA program. So, you know, in a sense, swings and roundabouts. And I'm interested in how it is that the museum starts communicating about its purpose as that purpose changes. Because, of course, it's all very well to focus on the fact that the museum suffered. But frankly, so did everyone. You know, the crisis that you described in in the book are universal. So farmers and commerce are, of course, also affected by each of these events. So how does the museum change the way it thinks about itself? But also, I think also importantly, how does the museum change the way it tells us about its mission? Yeah, I I think I I ended up taking a very different view of the Great Depression than a lot of other scholars. So Mm -hmm. uh, a historian and anthropologist named George Stocking calls this era of museum history an institutional and methodological backwater. So I just, (laughs) I love that phrasing, even though I don't agree with it, because uh, what I see is happening, I think if if you only look at sort of the most simplistic, raw academic output, is that true? That if you're only looking at the uh, elite scholars and scientists Mm -hmm. and what they're drawing out from museum collections, then yes, that thesis holds true. But if you think about what happens after the Second World War, especially at university museums, so places like Harvard, University of Chicago, and University of California, Berkeley, which is administering, as you said, the Hearst Museum, there is an enormous explosion in research output between 1945 and 1955 in the United States. Mm -hmm. Like, unprecedented number, you know, levels of research production that are coming out of that. Well, honestly, it's it's a pretty, on some level, a pretty simple story, right? That soldiers return home from World War II and they have access to GI Bill benefits. Something we often yeah. forget about when we think about the GI Bill is that people didn't just go for engineering degrees or to medical school. They went to art school. They became archaeologists and mm-hmm. anthropologists. And all of that huge inf- infusion of funding led to an enormous growth of production in these disciplines. But it's not possible without the work of those New Deal era workers who did mm-hmm. things like create new card catalogs and yeah. uh, rearrange just fundamentally the collections or to engage in these massive hundred people uh, archaeological expeditions in, in the Southwest. So I think we have to sort of take this longer view, right, uh, that, that maybe there are cycles uh, that a museum can go in. And, and I see a lot of either or language, even into the 1960s and 1970s, when people are talking about, for example, the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art, one of the largest, most amazing cultural institutions anywhere, right? And saying, you know, we need to st- stop focusing on, on collecting and focusing more on education. Mm-hmm. 
and there's a lot of like battling in this era all the way up to the president of like an either or sort of a thing and that you know maybe we need to intentionally focus on one thing or another um but here during the great depression and second world war i think museums were forced in many respects to look inward right to think about um you know what they're doing rather than sort of focusing on going out into the world and gl global collecting expeditions so um in some ways it's a little bit cart and horse sort of a phenomenon to what yeah. extent can we be intentional about leading into a new direction and to what extent do we need to frankly have some humility about uh not being able to know what direction global events will take us or or how best to to respond to that uh but at least being mindful of those possibilities right that um something as awful as a an economic depression or recession can create some potential opportunities and certainly something about as as awful and devastating as the second world war you know there's no way i think to sort of posit this global massive event in which millions of people die as being a good thing right but um mm. uh, people are said to by the 1940s and 1950s americans are said to be much more interested in global events after mm. uh these events and so perhaps that could be a good thing stretching forward into the future i i wonder if we've lost some of that in the united states right this curiosity about the world huh. i mean maybe this is a curse of recent history that one cannot really separate oneself that easily from from such recent events right i want to dwell a little bit on the second world war and the museum's role in the war effort again i'm kind of setting this up for consideration of what happens today because we all observed museums really jump to conclusions the moment that the coronavirus appeared you know there wasn't a single museum that didn't have a george floyd policy within within days but you note a couple of really interesting things that happened around the Smithsonian during the Second World War that show potentially how decisions about the museum's service to community, service to the state, quite importantly as well, shapes itself. So the Smithsonian, I think in a kind of hilarious way, literally forms a committee to decide what its, what its role in the war is. It actually has to pull its stuff because it turns out that the management, that the leadership doesn't really know what a museum should do during the war. And I'm, I'm, I'm smirking, but I'm also thinking like, this is how it should be, yes? Like museums should not be war waging machines. Yet there are also accounts of institutions like the Smithsonian falling over themselves to show themselves as being very useful to the executive during the war effort. So how does that shape? And again, this kind of cart and horse you know, please exploit me, please use me. We have knowledge that might be useful for the army, but also look at us, uh, population. We are the ones winning the war for you. Where's the compass pointing at the end? Yeah, what a what a brilliantly stated question. And uh, uh, thank you for that. That's really thoughtful. And just, and... just, just cynically, that's, that's my <laughs> <brand>. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm left conflicted about this moment, right? Because, you know, on the one hand, I think, my thesis as a public historian is that I want museums to be relevant to the contemporary world, right? I, I don't think sort of a mission of antiquarianism of look at these beautiful, wonderful things in isolation really does hmm. all that much good uh, compared to what museums could do, which is to tell stories and to uh, highlight and emphasize truths in the world, which on some level, uh, talking about truth and fact I mean, it seems so sort of basic 10, 15 years ago, right? But mm. now it, it's kind of this, in some ways, sort of contentious thing. So I, I want museums to be civically engaged. I want museums to uh, uh, be involved and in, in responding to, to present debates and, and helping out their community and, and being collaborative. So now here we have an episode where the Smithsonian is being collaborative. It's sort of engaging with, quote unquote, the broader community through this engagement with the state. But it's, as your question suggests, it's to a war-making effort. It's to a, an effort of, of total war, the likes of which humanity had never seen to that point. Mm. And um, now, you know, every time we fight a new war, we're going to be engaged with new technological questions. You know, it might not be something like the, the atom bomb exactly, but it might be the ethics of using unmanned drones in warfare, right? 
um, the questions will keep sort of advancing. And that is to say, just from the end here, uh, you know, sort of the Smithsonian still to the present day has a State Department liaison mm. and considers, you know, does workshops and programs uh, related to cultural heritage preservation in Syria, Iraq, and, and Afghanistan, yeah. and elsewhere. So this is still a pertinent question. But back to World War II for a moment. As you suggested, even though they've just gone through sort of a, a similar shorter duration conflict in the United States with World War I, there's still a lot of uncertainty about what a museum should do during a total war. Um, and surveys are conducted of staff. A publication series is brought out. Sort of one of the tantalizing and fascinating parts of these episodes is that a huge number of Army and Navy staff members sort of in dribs and drabs over the next five years make hundreds and hundreds of requests to view objects in the Smithsonian's collection. Mm. Um, so I just I sort of wanted to call out like in the midst of this crisis moment, disaster moment, I don't think museums always make the right decisions. It's not always the case that these moves should they shouldn't go without question, certainly. But clearly, the, the Smithsonian is taking advantage in some level of a new opportunity, a shift in a new direction to become even more sort of relevant uh, to uh, the, the government and the state and arguably to civic life on some level, uh, but in a way that we still haven't really thought about or problematized, uh, it, you know, in a meaningful sort of way. Like, what does that, that mean? This uh, Most people that brought their collections there or donate collections or, or when collections are acquired, they're not imagining that they're going to be going to, to, to making war in the future. We, we tend to think of as John Cotton Dana and, and as future leaders of museum presidents frequently said around this era that this should be an institution for making peace. Uh, this should be an institution for promoting the peaceful arts. Uh, so while they're making those public statements behind the scenes, they're making war. So uh, how do we sort of reconcile those things that are clearly in tension at this very watershed moment, as you suggested? Interesting, because I, I don't think we do in the end. So you wrote the book before the U Ukraine conflict really kicked off. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. But it's interesting to think that actually the position of institutions right now seems to be unanimously pro-war. And at the risk of making myself unpopular, I don't think it is particularly useful for the popular imagination and the understanding of what it is that our governments are involved in, for our cultural institutions to be waving the Ukrainian flag quite as uncritically as they do. So the Guggenheim in New York, for instance, was the site of a protest very early on after the escalation in 2022, where a bunch of protesters started throwing paper airplanes down the building, calling for NATO enforcing a no-fly zone. So like instantly calling for the US and NATO to become engaged in, in the war. And of course, this is in the program in which we discuss whether this is a good idea or not. I, I wonder whether there isn't kind of a precedent being set by the Smithsonian and a few institutions like it at the time of the Second World War. So maybe from that perspective, I could ask you to think about the public-private nature of the museum. This is a very peculiar thing in the US. Of course, in Europe, museums have presided over revolutions, maybe a little bit earlier. But then we also had the kind of civilizing mission of the museum much more pronounced before, before the First and Second World War. But what happens in the US as the museum really thinks of itself as, as private? because U.S. museums are always founded by someone who has an idea of where they should go 
And those ideologies might extend far beyond the State Department's wishes. Yes. So by this era, and by that I mean the World War II era, we're, we're getting to the point where some cultural institutions had maybe even been around for 100 years, 70 years, meaning that a lot of their original founders by this point had passed away. Mm -hmm. um, but mission statements are certainly still in place. Bylaws are certainly still in place governing some, at least some of these decisions that people are sort of bound by uh, ideas about what institutions sort of originally might be. Um, back to the, the war question just for a moment, because there's one other choice that surprised me on some level, but then on another level now, having both lived through the pandemic and, and these recent conflicts, I feel like I can better understand. Um, I believe it was the Los Angeles uh, Museum of, of Natural History uh, at one point puts up two photography exhibits. Mm -hmm. And one of them is war-related, explicitly war-related. And then another one of them is intentionally not war-related. It's I, you know, a, a photographic exhibit about the science of butterflies or, or something along those lines. <laughs> and the hey, I'd go to see that. Yeah, well, the, I mean, the, the 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 curators and the museum leaders are saying, look, we're doing this with some intent, right? That we want to both offer some space to meditate on, you know, this sort of a thing, and then we also want a space to potentially escape from it. And you know, I think. We often talk about escapism these days as a as a bad word that you're escaping from your sort of civic duty to, uh, you know, be uh, angered by whatever sort of scandal that we're supposed to, you know, whatever sort of reality show scandal that we're supposed to be ticked off about now. But what about checking out from that? You know, like, what does that sort of look like? What is um, slow looking at a, a work of art uh, that's over 100 years old? Where can that take me cognitively that reading the, the news might not necessarily take me? So, yeah, I think that's still a, a clearly something that is very unresolved in, in that era, because by the time you get to the Vietnam War, right, there mm. is a lot of different feeling and sentiment about the, the nature and positionality of, of museums and, and how they should celebrate or, or treat war. Uh, and, and certainly that carries forward with the, um, the Enola Gay episode that I write about in the, the later chapters of, of this book. But I think a lot of that World War II era ethos changes around the time of the Vietnam War, right? And the growing protests yeah. um, and how a lot of that ultimately does uh, shift over to the museum as a site. I have a couple of questions on that. And one is almost historiographic to an extent. And I'm wondering about how it is that all these issues start creeping up on the museum. And 1970 is this moment of explosion. So it seems to me that in a consciousness of the latter parts of the 20th century, there was this kind of fast forward between 1945 and 1970. But the second question is, is about primacy of art institutions, particularly the birth of contemporary art and and its many forms around the late 1960s and into the 1970s. Mm -hmm. Because some of the narratives that you make really kind of are jarring with to, today's sensibilities of the contemporary art museum, but one can really go along with them if we consider the ethnography and history aspect of, of a yeah. collection. Again, yeah, the Smithsonian is it's great for state interest because it has gone and amassed all these collections of objects from cultures that might become military interest. But there is a relatively little that contemporary art would have been able to to do for the war effort. What, one would think. One would think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One would think. There's another way to look at that. But go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm, I wanted to to actually leave you to exactly that. What is the what is the balance of the ethnographic museum versus the contemporary art museum in shaping the understanding of the museum as a thing in and of itself? Mm. That kind of fast forward us all the way to the 1970s work, workers' art guild strikes. So this is the spoiler. We're getting towards the, the point where Ooh. suddenly artists and curators are demanding that they should be able to dictate policy and now are making actually very, very different proposals for the world. They are anti-war as opposed to softly complicit. So I think a lot changes. Uh, of course, the United States has an active art scene in the 1920s and 30s. But I mean, consider that the MoMA is founded uh, just weeks before the 1929 uh, crash. 
Uh, so they're working through the Great Depression, but you know, still in the United States, older European art is valued more than uh, contemporary art, right? Um, that you know, the 1915 Armory show is capturing some attention, but there were contemporary art shows at, at places like the Brooklyn Museum, and, and kind of nobody cared. But then, starting in the 1950s and 60s, uh, things really do change. So if you look at just the data. Between the 50s and the 1970s, the number of contemporary art galleries selling contemporary art in the United States triples, triples. Um, the uh, number of people going to see uh, museums, especially, you know, including these large new contemporary art museums, suddenly outpaces people going to sporting events for the first time. Wow. So um, there's uh, there's something happening there in in that moment. You know, to to me, a, another thing that that happens though that's really important is that you see an overall shift in media coverage in that era. So if you go back to the 20s and 30s and you read newspapers uh, or magazines, there's more of a balance between thinking about historic house museums history museums, anthropology museums are still really part of the, the national ethos as far as museum going. Mm -hmm. um, but art museums really become preeminent in uh, the 1950s and 1960s, um, so, so much so that they become really profound uh, sites for later protest and uh, debate and, and dialogue. Uh, sometimes through art and uh, art commissions and, and collectives, um, that are, you know, submitting works of art that have contemporary resonance, or, or um, uh, you know, that that are that are trying to state something about the the current world. Uh, they're political in some ways, uh, whereas anthropology museums, archaeology, history are seen as somewhat less political by the 1960s and 1970s. Mm. Now that changes during the 1980s and 1990s when a lot of people do see those places as sites of politics. But for a time, it's art museums that are attracting a lot of that attention, uh, building up to the, as you mentioned, the 1970 art strike. Yeah. So the art strike is a, is a super interesting moment. 1970, a bunch of artists, curators wanted to protest the Vietnam War. And I wanted to think about this in comparison to the kind of strike art protest that we have become quite used to since. So there have been many, many calls for boycotts of one type of institution, solidarity closures, and so on. And one thing that um, stuck in my mind in recent, re the recent past was the January 20th strike, which was supposed to coincide with the inauguration of Donald Trump in 2017. And the January 20th strike appears to have been a complete fiasco because you know every protest that day <laughs> has ended up in a fiasco ultimately. But what's the mythology of things that begin to happen in 1970 around those strikes in May? And in particular, I'm interested in what it is that convinces the museum. I think it really is a moment when, when the museum becomes convinced that it now has this kind of outsized political import in society. Mm -hmm. So there's a, you already addressed this a little bit, but there seems to me to be a bit of a quantum leap. It's not like we've been earning your trust. We've been earning through a collaboration with the state, this exalted position. It's not that you, we have lured audiences in to come and listen to our narratives. There really is a, a kind of quantum leap to just say, look, now we are the culture. Now we are able to present a new paradigm and it will be covered. Yeah, I, I find them so fascinating that, you know, the, the art strike in 1970 posited itself as against oppression and war, you know, so no small goals, you know, uh, in terms of and then uh, according to many accounts, opposition to sexism was added as a later feature to these uh, these calls. So there's sort of these these general protests that are part of the 1970 art strike. Um, but there's also a whole host of specific concerns. Um, many of the people who are involved are, of course, are artists. And, you know, as as mentioned, that there were a lot of like celebrity artists uh, in the United States in the 20s and 30s, but a lot of them were European. Right. So coming and, and say, saying something about a political issue or, or whatever, they, they're sort of sidelined. Uh, in, in a way, there's a uh, an episode that I write about in the book where art in the 20s and 30s was protested uh, 
with anonymous leaflet flyers that were mm-hmm. uh, handed out suggesting that the art was Bolshevik and, you know, communist inspired <laughs> uh, modern art. So you should you should avoid seeing it. So it's not as though this hasn't been a contentious sort of controversial space, but artists were were pretty fairly maligned uh, and, and pushed to the side in, in terms of a lot of these major political conversations. But by the 50s, 60s, and 70s, they start to uh, have a a, a more prominent place. Now, let's leave some room for irony here and uh, tension and and some weirdness, right? So here are some of these very conservative U.S. political leaders who are now engaged in the Cold War. And you have classically trained dancers, ballerinas in Russia, classically trained musicians, uh, the, the you know symphonies to the point that you, the United States frankly can't quite compete, but they do have in the United States jazz music, mm-hmm. right? And they have abstract expressionism. And whereas in the 30s, jazz music is seen as like this outsider art, right? That is uh, uh, predominantly Black Americans in big cities. Now it's being championed by figures like Dwight Eisenhower, right? Who's right. sending Louis Armstrong on a global uh, mission uh, to promote Americanism, right? So seeing abstract artists as being a larger sort of component of the culture was happening both through art galleries opening up and people becoming interested in it, but also government intervention, right? And CIA money that is going into sort of promoting these Mm. types of things. So then when the artists uh, take issue with how their art is being displayed at the MoMA and the Met, and they go in to actually move things around at the galleries themselves, right? Uh, museums push back on that. Uh, and, and a famous work of art called And Babies that shows, depicts mm-hmm. the My Lai Massacre in the Vietnam War was selected by the artists as the prize-winning entry. And museum uh, uh, officials at the MoMA tried to shut that down. So, you know, there's a lot of contention within the art space and the museum space at this moment. But we also have to remember that in this moment, in 1969, 1970, there's a ton of protests happening. There's a ton of anti-war protests happening. But there are also, frankly, equally as large protests that are in support of the war happening in New York City that summer, which is surprising mm. uh, uh, to, to me to sort of uh, remind myself that, that this is a, a if you take polls at this time, it's it's still pretty divided, right? But the artists, I think, notably create a list of demands uh, that in some ways foreshadows a lot of debates that uh, would happen in the future about museums, but have really limited success, right? They're not even able to shut down the Met for a day, but some museums sort of close in a, in a sympathy strike. Um, but a lot of this episode is, is, again, quite forgotten in terms of thinking about museums. And I think museums could have benefited from thinking about it a bit more broadly and thinking about how to sort of face these protest situations head on and in a more collaborative way, because they might indicate things that you want to think about, not just in the present moment, but in the in the future and how to be better stewards for your communities and how to actually engage with different different sides of a protest. I'm amazed that having written the book you have written, you've remained quite so optimistic, Sam, because I, I certainly don't think I have the nerve to so you mentioned a degree of irony. Robert Rauschenberg quite funnily says that he would like the government to put on some show so he could withdraw from it. And of course, artist boycotts and artist withdrawals have become de rigueur now in all state-sponsored, even privately sponsored large events. You mentioned the CIA's involvement in abstract expressionism, of course, that's a documented and I think and the appreciated for its severity involvement of the CIA in Documenta in Germany, for instance. Mm-hmm. And I think I think these moments are kind of unappreciated for a couple of reasons. So one, it's not like the CIA or its equivalents in the private sphere do not continue to be completely involved in everything that artists do, whether it's for institutions or these kind of quasi-institutional spaces like big exhibitions. And second, is that we see in the very formulation of the Art Workers Coalition's demands, as you already mentioned, this kind of collapsing of intellectual and ideological demands with labor conditions. Mm. And of course, if we only look to May 1968 in Paris as opposed to May 1970 in New York, we would know that intellectuals and factory workers are only 
temporarily bedfellows and actually the but it's something that that strikes me as isn't really explained all that well because the kind of crisis that institutions find themselves in today are all already contained in the 1970s and and I'm talking about the crisis that is invoked introduced exacerbated by the artist as opposed to external circumstances mm -hmm. So we have this kind of strange moment that, you, of course, you end the book on where we see COVID, uh, you know, climate change supposedly induced flooding, you know, making, making museums wet and we've got uh, racial tensions. Somehow it is both the external factor and it is also the involvement of the artist, the, the very society that is making the museum in protesting the institution. You know, and as much as one can learn from history in the very kind of ironic inverted quotes, this doesn't seem to have happened. Sure. Well, one thing you indicated there at the very end of the question is, I think, one of the take home points is that this is complicated, that it's it's sometimes easy to sort of see, you know, I, I sort of set off thinking, OK, there will be these episodes and then maybe there will be a lesson drawn from this episode. And of course, I'm reminded as a historian that it's very rarely clearly black and white, right? Mm. And one of the other sort of points is that it's rarely just one thing. Flashing forward, one of the uh, uh, episodes of, of the book that, of course, I think, you know, I'm thinking about 20th century history. We In the United States, we have to think about September 11th, 2001, mm -hmm. and uh, the many changes that that wrought. But if you go back and read museum sort of magazines, like insider publications, uh, so many people predicted in 2001 and 2002 that terrorism would be the main concern of the next decade, right? That mm -hmm. that safety and sort of structural stability of, of buildings and uh, the government classifying museums as quote unquote soft targets for terroristic uh, violence. But if you if you look ultimately at, at what happens over the course of the next decade, right? Climate change is arguably a much larger factor in what happens to museums. Uh, the economic recession of 2008, again, a much larger factor, arguably, than what ultimately plays out uh, in terms of terroristic violence in the United States. So I think part of what that suggests to me is that we need to think more broadly about what a museum crisis is, what it could be in the future, um, how many people really predicted a global pandemic. There were certainly some voices out there that that said that that was a true possibility. And so Museum leaders, I think, need to think a little bit more broadly about those as possibilities um, and more creatively and, and collaboratively in terms of their response to these challenges, right? Just to go back to the 1970 art strike for a moment, it's it's almost cringeworthy, the response that you get to those <laughs> uh, those strikes, right? There's, it's very tone deaf, very explainy, uh, sort of ham-fisted, not a lot of active listening, uh, pretty poor leadership models. Uh, that are being expressed in that. And it's not like people totally figure this out in the 80s and 90s uh, or, or anything like that. But there, it, there's certainly a reminder that new challenges and unexpected challenges will be faced. And again, like with those early episodes that we talked about, it might not just be one thing, right? That an economic crisis might be coupled with uh, uh, you know, a, a war or fires uh, or, or other sorts of calamities sort of happening in, you know, at the same time. You know, thinking about how complicated these situations are, uh, thinking about how they often sort of coalesce around uh, multiple moments coming together. Uh, but again, sort of optimistically, and if I could be the glass half full guys for a second, um, <laughs> I, I, I do see that in many of these episodes, like we talked about with the Smithsonian fire early on, that if you sort of take a longer view of things, that uh, oftentimes museums come out of these situations stronger than before, that uh, they have a better idea of how to uh, create an exhibit with community input, uh, or they have a, a, a better idea sometimes of what not to do in, in that regard, or a better idea of how to communicate with artists and other types of constituents. So it's not as though museums have figured out all of the different solutions to these problems, but over the course of a century or more, they've, they've certainly tried a lot of different things in different moments and spaces. And I think we could more uh, thoughtfully think through some of those to try to find uh, better approaches in the future. Where do you think those kind of reflections are actually taking place? Because one of the things 
And this is maybe slightly unfair, almost final questions. But one of the things that really bothers me is that I cannot quite figure out why cultural institutions see themselves always as the leaders and also the scapegoats in every single situation. So you, for instance, alluded to climate change, but I constantly hear statements like museums are the most important key to solving climate change. Like this is a position of ICOM and, and a whole host of organizations. And you, you wonder for a moment, like, do, do you have any, any idea of how irrelevant you really are? There is also this, I think, a reality that the paradigm of contemporary art is also beginning to fade a little bit in its influence. We're definitely far away from, from 1970, where two or three artists could say something and the world changed. So I'm wondering, who is doing the thinking? Who is actually taking the kind of historian's view and, and really seriously asking the question of purpose? Because there's an assumption in, in the arguments you've made, and it reads really convincingly in a book, that we want the museum to survive, that we want it to be stronger, that we want it to be more ready. Mm -hmm. But actually, what's, what does not seem to come across in the way that we think about museums is a sense of the long-lasting purpose. So you quote, for example, right at the end of the book from a speech by Barack Obama, who I think after the end of his presidency addressed an opening of one of the Smithsonian's many museums. And he says something that, that was almost perverse now. We'll walk away from this museum that much more in love with this country. You know, like he's talking in kind of completely patriotic terms, like, oh, my God, yeah. the Smithsonian would actually make you a, a more obedient, more, more patriotic American, mm. which, of course, if one is at all culturally and socially conservative, is, is what a museum should be for. But I, I dare say the museum world would kind of shriek at this, this suggestion. So in as much as I don't really have a question at the end, I wonder where you see the future being constructed according to these kind of enlightened principles of being actually able to understand the complexity of the, of the, of the path. Because I'm sure. I frankly pessimistic. Yeah. I'm not seeing that much of it within the industry itself. All right. Well, if we look at some other institutions and sort of gauge the vital statistics of, let's say, the church or department stores, <laughs> or other institutions in some ways that were really vital in the 19th century, right? We see a lot of change and a lot of mm -hmm. ways in which other cultural institutions are even less relevant and have even lost more sort of cultural parlance in terms of, uh, of the pie. Uh, and certainly yeah. something that you've indicated very early on, you suggested like the, the radio, right? Like there's just so many more channels of information, competing channels of information now that fundamentally were not available, right? Even if you think about like the encyclopedia, yeah. uh, so many of the early encyclopedias, right, were printed in black and white. And so then to go to a natural history museum or to go to an art museum and to see the thing in living color, right? Like that was a, a really profound experience for a lot of people. So here again, I, I, I find uh, some tension or, or uh, myself conflicted, right? In seeing how museums can do so much better. Um, you know, I, I'm someone who writes and thinks a lot about the repatriation of native and other uh, black or indigenous remains that uh, in many cases have been looted and uh, stolen from, from uh, grave sites and, and brought to museums for quote unquote purposes of science uh, and public education. So our ethos has changed. Our, you know, even in the time that I have spent in museums in the last couple of decades, the ethics and the conversations around this have, have just fundamentally changed. And uh, some museums are finding themselves behind the curve and they find themselves called out in places like ProPublica or the New York Times or the Washington Post. And my sense is that a lot of museums will respond to that pressure, will respond to that criticism writ large uh, and, and try to do better. I also find some optimism when I just go to museums, right? When I just <laughs> go to a major natural history museum and I see young people, or when I bring my son, who's uh, almost six years old, to a museum, and we go look at dinosaurs, and he's asking me questions about rocks and fossils and how old the earth is. Frankly, we don't have those conversations when we're watching a documentary, necessarily. I mean, we do some, mm. 
Um, but you know, when we're hiking, we have these great conversations when we're out in the world, when we go to a museum, we have these great conversations. We, we, we less so is that sparked right by watching something on TV or listening to it, uh, on the radio. So I, I find, I think there's still room for us to continue to do better. Uh, but museums I think can and should still serve as a way to host these conversations to sort of serve as a big living room for a community. Uh, to be op more open and inclusive, I think, still is part of the challenge and, and the goal. You're still trying to shed off the skin of this elitism and and the the origins of your and, and your foundation. Um, there's still so much more work that can be done. But um, I see people uh, streaming into the museums, especially on free days, and encountering things that they might not otherwise. And uh, I still think that there is some potential for popular education and and uh, truth-seeking uh, in a world where we need a lot of that, frankly. Oh, Sam, I commend your idealism and your optimism. Thank you so much. I will also commend to our listeners the rest of the book where, in which you tackle, I think quite pertinently today, the culture wars of the 80s and the 90s, which we seem to be yet again seeing kind of a straightforward copy and paste of with very, very little refinement. And indeed, the questions of reputation, which you, which you address with a very cool look but for now, thank you so much for joining me, Sam. Pierre, I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you. The Museum, A Short History of Crisis and Resilience by Samuel Redman is published by New York University Press. I'm Pierre Delancin, and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thanks for listening and join us next time. Thank you.